1: You're listening to American Shadows,
2: a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. In late 1953, four senators convened in Washington, D.C. They had formed a bipartisan subcommittee with the purpose of trying to understand the causes of the nation's juvenile delinquency problems, and at the center of their concerns were comic books. Less than two decades before, comics were forever changed when the world met Superman. Clark Kent spawned an entire genre, and his arrival marked the beginning of what's now known as the Golden Age of Comics. Throughout World War II, Captain America, Wonder Woman, and many others joined the heroic ranks. Together, they provided a hopeful, patriotic distraction to readers. These were the good guys. After the war, superheroes continued to dominate the market. But there were challengers on the horizon. Nostalgic westerns competed with science fiction. Archie and his Riverdale friends lived out the teenage experience. And, of course, Walt Disney entered the fray with Mickey Mouse. It may seem silly to us today that paper-bound illustrations could cause such a moral panic. But by the 1950s, comic books were the single most popular form of reading material for young people. The dramas of good and evil played out between their pages. The nation was captivated and some parents were worried. What worried them most were the stories that also had a wildly popular reception, those about crime and horror. For a single dime, America's children ravenously consumed titles such as Tales from the Crypt and Seduction of the Innocent. In the nightmares of these parents, comics were leading their children down a dark path. By 1954, the Senate Subcommittee convened two hearings on comic books and what to do about them. In response, the industry adopted a voluntary code of conduct that outlined what could and could not be published. Uh, For example, it said that all lurid, unsavory, gruesome illustrations shall be eliminated, and no comic magazine shall use the words horror or terror in its title. Scenes of excessive violence were also prohibited, as were any storylines that suggested any kind of sympathy for those convicted of a crime. Horror had no place in society, they thought. Even with tales from the imagination, there was always a chance it could leap from the pages into real life. And sometimes, it did. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. Welcome to American Shadows. Eddie wasn't even seven years old. But his mother entrusted him with an important task. She sent him to the nearby German bakery for a fresh loaf of bread. She gave him some coins and told him to come right home. When little Eddie arrived at the store, he realized something awful. The coins had fallen out of his pocket. His mother was going to be furious. He slunk back home to face the consequences. If only he could atone for his sins, then maybe he would learn how to be responsible. But... Any hopes he might have had were dashed as soon as his mother saw his empty hands. In a tone more cutting than angry, Augusta admonished her son, You dreadful child, only a mother could love you. And it was just that, the potential to be loved, that Eddie longed for. To be worthy of the love of his mother, the most pure woman in the world, was the dream. As he grew up, his mother's words seemed to be true his father abused him and his older brother, Henry. Their father, George, had been orphaned by a flash flood and raised by his loveless grandparents. It was a rough, demanding environment for a child. As a young adult, George met Augusta Lurk, who seemed to have everything he lacked, a big, loud family, steely conviction, and a mind for business. Augusta had been born in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and herself grown up in a volatile world of abuse. Traumatized, Augusta looked for a way out, and George Gein seemed like a promising option. George was 24 and Augusta 19 when the two married on December 4th of 1899. You can't help but wonder what their first Christmas was like if they had any hopes or dreams for not just a new life together, but a new year, a new century. But if there was a spark, it fizzled as quickly as it came. Soon, Augusta and George were abusers and abused, which was the only cycle they knew. George's dependence on alcohol aggravated his moods, along with his wife's disgust. Augusta's strength became an unwavering stream of criticisms. Then George's reserved demeanor turned into stonewalling, which was only broken by flashes of physical violence against his wife. Into this household arrived Henry, on January 17th of 1901. Five years later, their second child, Edward, was born, on August 27th of 1906. It didn't take long for baby Eddie to become Augusta's favorite. While in La Crosse, the Geens managed a grocery store, At first, George was in charge, as things were done. But whether perceived or real, his ineptitude left Augusta no choice but to take over more and more responsibility. Eventually, she owned and operated the store, and George became her employee. The Gein family moved to Plainsfield, Wisconsin in 1914. They settled on a farm outside of town. As a business owner, Augusta had penny-pinched, and now, in her hands, she held a deed to almost two hundred acres of land and a two-story farmhouse. It was in her name, and she was going to turn it into a safe haven from the outside world. Eddie hoped that his mother would finally be happy, that she could relax in the isolation of their remote farm. But as the boys grew, so did Augusta's fixation on carnal sin. Her boys were coming into adolescence and she feared for their souls. The farmstead had once been a place of hope, but by the end of the 1930s, what had been new and promising had become decrepit and squandered. Tarnished by time, by failure, by sin, they thought, no matter what they did, the farm just wouldn't yield. Augusta continued to pray. And as the farm struggled, young Ed and Henry did as well. Both received abuse from their parents, but Henry saw life beyond the farm, and ways other than his mother's. Ed, however, adored her, and bought in completely. He had no want or need for any other perspective. To him, his mother was as godlike as a person could be, and not to be challenged. George died on April Fool's Day in 1940, an ironic end as far as Augusta was concerned, He had been unable to work for years due to the tolls of abuse and addiction. Perhaps he found peace, but grief only exacerbated Augusta's paranoia. As they tended the failing farmstead together, Henry mustered up the nerve to voice his concerns to Ed. He had worked odd jobs away from the family, and had seen a little bit of the world beyond Augusta's clutches. Perhaps, he suggested to Ed, their mother was judging people a little too harshly. Maybe the world outside their house wasn't pure evil, and she was... wrong? Day in, day out, Henry had seen, firsthand, just how deeply Ed admired their mother, how attached he was, and how he clung to every word she said, no matter how biting or cruel. But they were brothers, and had been through so much abuse together, Ed would have to understand. Or so he thought. Unfortunately, Ed did not see reason in Henry's words. He was devastated, shocked that his brother could question their divine mother. Augusta had picked her favorite child well, and when tested, he proved to be completely loyal. Soon thereafter, the farm caught fire. According to Ed, the fire was started intentionally to clear a field, but it got out of hand, and in their efforts to contain it, Henry went one way while Ed went another. Night came on quickly and the fire was soon contained, but when Ed went looking for Henry, he had disappeared. With no telephone, Ed drove into town to get help. Once back at the farm, Ed allegedly walked them directly to Henry's lifeless form in the field, untouched by flame. Two days later, the county coroner filled out Henry Gein's death certificate. Accidental death, asphyxiation, was the official cause. Ed's apparent harmlessness, coupled with an acceptance that these things just happen, made foul play seem next to impossible. Back at the farm, Ed and Augusta were alone. It was 1944, Ed was almost 40 years old, and he finally had his mother, all to himself. Together, they managed the remaining crumbs of the farmstead, and lived their isolated lives much as they had before— Augusta read her Bible, and Ed read, well, comic books and horror stories. After experiencing two strokes in quick succession, Augusta was bedridden and reliant on Ed. It was thankless work, but his mother needed him. She always knew to look out for signs of sin and evil that she was aware of, but Augusta hadn't modernized her fears enough. It was then, the backbone of the family incapacitated, that she finally took note of the materials Ed loved to read. He devoured dark stories, and she who knew him best was uneasy. For a brief moment, Ed had everything he dreamed of, his pure mother all to himself. But before he could settle in, she was gone. Augusta died in December of 1945. For the first time in his life, Edward Theodore Gein was completely alone. Bernice Warden had worked at Warden Hardware and Implement Company since the 1920s, and she worked it well. Widowed young, she wound up expanding the original offerings and pushing the boundaries of what women business owners achieved. She was beloved by the Plainsfield community. The year that the local paper started running a column honoring a citizen of the week, Bernice was the first to receive the title. She was close to her family in every way particularly doting on her grandkids. Although she was busy, she often made time for her favorite hobby, fishing. But on one dreary morning in November of 1957, Bernice probably didn't mind staying at the shop. It was the first day of hunting season, and someone was bound to have forgotten something. If they pulled up to the store only to find it closed, well, that would be a real disappointment. The days had been getting shorter, Back on his farm, Ed didn't have electricity, heating, or any living company. Winter was coming, and it would be nice to get out before the cold made it terribly unpleasant to do so. He left the farm that morning with a short to-do list in hand. Ed liked going into town. No one could come close to replacing his mother, but he was a social creature, in spite of Augusta's best efforts. Ed had found that not all human connection was as bad as his mother had preached, For a while, he'd enjoyed drinks and the company of Mary Hogan, the proprietor of a local watering hole. However, she had disappeared in 1954, and it seemed that he was out of friend. Ed found the trek into town easily managed, no matter the season. Plainsfield had essentials that he didn't, especially since he'd completely given up on the farm after his mother died. That had been 12 years ago, and he was dependent on the modern conveniences that only the town could offer. Warden's store was the place for just about everything, and by some accounts, Ed had taken a liking to Bernice. Later that evening, Bernice's son Frank returned from his hunt, empty-handed and somewhat confused. He had heard through a friend that the Warden's store had been closed all day, which was strange. He couldn't think of a reason why his mother would leave the shop on such an important day of the season. When Frank arrived at the store, he immediately knew something was wrong. There was blood on the floor, and he saw that the cash register was missing, and next to the empty space was the receipt book. He glanced down at the last line, where his mother had made a note of the last sale. Antifreeze, 2-1-Ed Gein. It all came back to Frank in a rush. The night before, he and his mother had been in the shop when Ed walked through the door. Ed had inquired about the price of antifreeze, and had casually asked Frank if he was going out to hunt the next day at the time it had barely registered as more than small talk now leaning against the counter where his mother should have stood frank feared the worst he worried that strange ed was responsible for all of this whatever this was meanwhile ed was wrapping up dinner at a neighbor's house earlier that day 16 year old bobby hill had arrived at ed's farm to ask a favor This was something his family did often, paying Ed to help with odd jobs. When he and his sister got there, they found Ed covered in blood. But it was hunting season, and Ed said that he was dressing a deer. To Bobby, who had gone hunting with Ed a number of times, this made sense. Ed cleaned up before giving Bobby and his sister a ride. Back at their home, their mother Irene did the polite thing and invited him to stay for supper. As they were finishing up, Irene's son-in-law returned home. He mentioned the commotion down at the warden's store. Bobby wanted to go see for himself, and Ed offered to drive him. So he went out to start the truck. Frank had alerted the police that Ed was the last sale registered at the shop. He was known to the cops, and they went to look for him. They knew he had a history of helping around the hill's farm, so they started their investigation on Irene's doorstep. They knocked and asked if she knew where Ed was. Irene pointed to the driveway, where Ed sat in his idling truck. The officers walked over. Ed rolled down the window and gave the officers a small smile. They asked him to come with them. They had some questions. Ed agreed, turned off the truck, and got into the back of their cruiser. While Ed had dinner at the hills, dark settled over the countryside. The Geens farmhouse had never been wired for electricity. So Art Sly, Washura County Sheriff, and Captain Lloyd Chopoyster of the Green Lake County Sheriff's Department grabbed their flashlights and began their search. They had a lead for a missing woman, and it took them into Ed's most private world. For the first time in years, outsiders freely moved about the interior of the Gein property while Ed was away. Art pointed his light into the outdoor summer kitchen and discovered a sight that would haunt him to the end of his days. There hung the headless corpse of Bernice Warden, carved, empty, skinned, and suspended from the ceiling. Art somehow made it out before vomiting. That wasn't the worst of it. In their search, they discovered evidence of macabre crafting. A box of genitalia. A full suit made of human skin. Inside the house, they peered around at masks made from human faces. A bowl fashioned out of a skullcap and chairs upholstered with flesh. Art and Lloyd went about the gruesome task of finding the rest of Bernice. Inside the home, her heart was found wrapped in a plastic bag by the stove. Other organs were found wrapped in newspaper and stuffed into an old suit. Her head was found in the corner of a room, threaded with string as if to hang it up too. Though they felt they could take no more, they entered one last room behind a closed door. It had an air of reverence and quiet. Dust sat undisturbed. It was his mother's room, which he had kept as nothing short of a shrine. Ed's compliance at the squad car was just the beginning of his amenability with law enforcement officials. He proved to be forthcoming, and confessed to having murdered Bernice Warden as well as Mary Hogan years earlier. But when asked about the other remains, he denied having killed more than twice. He was adamant. So where did the other body parts come from? Who did they come from, and how did Ed get them? To everyone's horror, Ed finally admitted that perhaps he had a habit of grave robbing. In fact, he could provide them with a list of graves he had robbed, all from three local graveyards, with all of the deceased victims bearing an uncanny resemblance to his mother. Once Ed was finished with his confession, he asked Art Slive if they could return to the farmstead. At the time, reporters swarmed the property like flies, day in and day out, But Ed wanted to show the sheriff something, so Art did what he could. It was his last visit home, and there he brought Art over to a remote area of his farm. There sat an ash heap, the rest of Mary Hogan, burned up after he had harvested what he wanted from her. Ed Gein was escorted to Waupon, Wisconsin, where he was admitted to the Central State Hospital for the Criminally Insane. Once there, the month-long evaluation period began. Meanwhile, with lightning speed, sensational headlines appeared in local Sunday editions. Soon, national papers caught on, and one could argue they never really stopped. Many details emerged from this period of intense pressure, paranoia, and anticipation. Ed himself cited memory issues to a doctor in the hospital, A professional noted Ed's abnormal attachment to Augusta. Life magazine published a juicy detail that Ed had always wanted to be a woman, fanning the salacious flames. In the meantime, Plainsfield was left to reckon with the nature of Gein's confession. Townsfolk were reluctant to believe it. Neighbors had accepted gifts of venison from him, and now they weren't sure whether it had been venison at all. The rug had been pulled out from under their feet, and hidden beneath it were the desecrated corpses of their neighbors, their loved ones, their friends. Plainsfield Cemetery had more visitors than usual on November 25th of 1957. Of the nine graves Ed had named as his targets, authorities had picked three to exhume. The grave of Eleanor Adams was chosen as the starting point, so they got to work. When the shovel hit something more solid than dirt, Everyone at the graveside perked up. After a couple more swipes, the lid of a casket came into view. However, when the lid was opened, there was nothing inside except for dust and the crowbar. Thirty yards away, Mabel Everson's grave was similarly disturbed, although her casket held an assortment of bones, dental plates, and a golden wedding band. With two of the three graves checked, Wisconsin authorities decided that Dean was telling the truth. He had killed Mary Hogan and Bernice Warden, but the other remains had truly been sourced from the grave. In January of 1958, Ed's observation period at Central State was over. The sanity hearing brought all evidence to bear, and experts weighed in. He was declared insane, and therefore unable to stand trial for his crimes. Disappointment spread through Plainsfield. It seemed there was no justice in sight as Ed got settled back at the hospital. Affairs were settled at the home that he'd never see again. In the first few months of 1958, papers were still driving curious readers to Plainsfield and that worn-down farmhouse seven miles outside of town. Just as Ed had delighted in tales of terror, these tourists arrived in droves, quickly overwhelming Plainsfield's infrastructure and its residents. Geeners, as they were called, were criticized for macabre voyeurism, but it didn't start with Ed Gein's House of Horrors in Plainsfield, and it certainly didn't end there. And so, when news spread that Ed's property and belongings were going to be auctioned off, stomachs throughout Plainsfield churned with dread. Then, in the pre-dawn darkness of March 20th of 1958, when even the reporters were in bed, a fire destroyed Ed's home, The Wisconsin Crime Lab had already removed all necessary elements from the crime scene. Just the day before, cleanup crews had burned trash in a heap 75 feet away from the house. The papers officially reported the Deputy Fire Marshal's opinion that lingering flames or burning embers could have started the fire. On March 30th of 1958, the auction of what was left of the Gean homestead took place. One of his vehicles was purchased by a sideshow manager, Bunny Gibbons, but Midwestern audiences who turned up for his other acts apparently felt this one cross the line. If someone was behind the fire, they must have been pleased that tourism to Plainsfield and the tangible relics of Ed Gean were largely destroyed they may have thought that if the shrine of evil was gone no one would want to make the pilgrimage and the town could put all of this behind them but it was too late the horror wasn't contained in the house it lived in the papers and in the minds of those who read them the rumors were in plainsfield and they were beyond it ed tucked away in his grim farmhouse reading scary stories by candle or lamplight was a perfect villain a superb creature in the night he was a phantom haunting graveyards and brought horrors from books and stories to life right there in plainsfield usa desecration of the dead is a taboo that transcends time and place and to learn that a small-statured farm boy hid such a monster under his checked hunting cap was something that no purification by fire could undo. Ed finally did go to trial in 1968, almost 11 years to the day that he had killed Bernice Warden. He was found not guilty by reason of insanity, and institutionalized again. For everyone else, it had been a decade of waiting for justice— and after just one week, the ghoul of Plainsfield was back inside the state hospital, guilty but not guilty, imprisoned but not suffering from accountability. Ed's return to the public eye was brief, but long enough to remind people why they had been grossly fascinated all those years before. In early 1974, Ed wanted to leave the hospital. Citing a of full mental recovery, his petition was filed and he held out hope but by the summer, it was rejected. In the eyes of the law, Ed was a risk they were not willing to take. After this rejection, Ed appeared content in the hospital once again. By all accounts, he was a good patient. And that makes sense, because for the first time in his life, Ed was getting used to receiving good, consistent care. Though Ed was confined to the hospital, the world outside found its way in. Filmmakers Errol Morris and Werner Herzog had been introduced by a mutual friend when they found something else in common, a shared interest in the story of Ed Gein. Of all the rumors about Ed, from cannibalism to serial killing, one seemed more plausible than the rest. Ed had confessed to grave digging already, but he had denied desecrating the most significant grave of all. So, Errol and Werner formed a plan to meet in Plainsfield and dig up the grave of Augusta Gein. When the agreed-upon evening arrived, Werner waited at the Plainsfield Cemetery, shovel in hand, but Errol never showed up. The film project never materialized, but Errol eventually spent about a year in Plainsfield. What he found was an uptick in murderers in the town after Ed's secret was discovered. Some speculate that it was Ed who made the town murderous. In the late 1970s, Ed was transferred from his longtime home in Waupun to a mental health institution in Madison, Wisconsin. On July 26th of 1984, Ed Gein died from respiratory failure. The next morning, at 6 a.m., attendants buried his remains in Plainsfield Cemetery, a place he had disturbed numerous times before. They buried him in the designated plot between his brother, Henry, and beloved mother, Augusta. Ed's life and crimes have been covered ad nauseam, but they still make for good media to this day. Having inspired the likes of Norman Bates and Leatherface, it's difficult to imagine a world without Ed Gein. He's given us nightmares beyond even his wildest dreams. And that's really saying something. There's more to this story. Stick around after this brief sponsor break to hear all about it.
1: This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu Judy was boring.
2: Hello.
0: Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com
2: It's my little escape.
0: Now Judy's the life of the party.
2: Oh baby, mama's bringing home the bacon.
0: Whoa, take it easy Judy! <laughs>
2: James Fallon had on his desk not one, but two major research projects. Before him sat a stack of brain scans from serial killers, and another for Alzheimer's research. The latter pile included images of James' brain, along with the brains of his loved ones. James had been working with the University of California, Irvine to map out patterns between psychopathic brains. He had spent hours with scans, from everyone from everyday depressives to prolific serial killers. But what he didn't expect was to find clear signs of psychopathy in one of the scans from the Alzheimer's pile. There it was, clear as day, a brain that showed the hallmarks of psychopaths, diminished empathy, morality, and impulse control. And it belonged to someone in his family. James backtracked, but the machine that had taken the images was in working order. He had to know who it was, anonymity be damned. James looked up the code from the image and put a name to the brain, and there, on the screen, he had his answer. He, himself, was a psychopath. How could it be? James took a look at his own life and behavior's. He was very successful, having been motivated by power and long having a knack for persuading others in his favor. He opted in for genetic testing, and the results were indeed interesting. His DNA was coated with high-risk alleles for aggression, violence, and low empathy, all psychopathic traits. James marveled more than anything. He wasn't terribly upset, more so intrigued. He had never done anything really wrong, and certainly didn't fit the mold of someone like Ed Gein. What we know now to be true is that there is a whole spectrum of psychopathy. The closest it comes to inclusion in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders is antisocial personality disorder and disocial personality disorder. James might not be a serial killer but he might be the person you'd flip off in traffic for not letting you merge. He attributes his pro-social success in life to steadfast, supportive, familial support. A loving childhood enabled a psychopath to find a fulfilling, beneficial career and build a loving family of his own. It's undeniable that James was dealt a good hand in life, and his nurturing likely made a big difference for him. The same can't be said for members of the rest of his family. Looking back at his family tree, James noticed something striking. In his lineage, he counted seven convicted murderers, including Lizzie Borden. American Shadows is hosted by Lauren Vogelbaum. This episode was written by Taylor Haggardorn and Robin Miniter and researched by Taylor Haggardorn with fact-checking by Jamie Vargas. It's produced by Jesse Funk and Trevor Young with executive producers Aaron Menke, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about the show, visit GrimAndMild.com. And for more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
0: No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists. Like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Spentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Bop Kids, Kids Megan Trainor, Fistle Poo, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash concertweek to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh and two Door Cinema Club. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health.